0: Around seven or so years ago, soon after my wife and I were married, we sat down to face a daunting task together. It was a task that would take hours to complete and would test much of our willpower, some of our limits. Both of our, both our arms and our brains would be exhausted by the time we were done. And yet it was not a task that we were begrudged to do at all. We were happy to do it. So what was this task, you ask? Writing a huge pile of thank you notes. (laughs) ever been there? (laughs) See, at our wedding, our friends and family had generously given us a huge pile of gifts. And so in order to show gratitude to them, we sat down and wrote each one of them a little card. Just a, a small token of appreciation, of thankfulness for what they'd given to us. Well, around three years after that, my wife and I sat down to face another daunting task. See, we had just had a baby. (laughs) And people, including some of you, had decided this was a good opportunity to shower more gifts on us. So in order to show our gratitude, we wrote another massive pile of thank you notes. Now, I have to confess something. I think those two rounds may have burned us out. I'm not sure if we sent out any after the second and third kids. <laughs> so I apologize. I sincerely apologize if you're on the non-receiving end of that, but that doesn't mean we weren't grateful. But we could have been we could have been much better at expressing it to you, to other people. As I read the passage from God's word that we'll be going through today, some questions kept going through my head. And that's not Am I grateful to people around us, or around me? But are we grateful to God? Are we grateful to God? Are we thankful for what He's done for us, and is doing in us? And if we are, do we do a good job expressing our thankfulness to Him? One person who did not have a problem expressing his gratitude, was the Apostle Paul. And we can learn much from his example. So to see this with me, if you would take a Bible and open with me to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, that's uh, on page 980. Philippians 1, page 980. Last Sunday, we began to go through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It's a fairly short letter, but it's super rich. And joyous, it's a short but joyous book of the Bible, centered on Jesus Christ. So it's a great book for us to go through together. But before we do that today, before we see what God has for us today, let's ask him to work in us, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help, we need your grace today. As we look into these words that were written so long ago, to translate them to us, each one of our hearts, I pray that your spirit would do a work in us, that we would be ready to hear from you, willing to hear from you. I pray that you would change each one of us today, even in small ways, that we would be more grateful, more in love with you after today, and help us express that in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent a long time last week looking at just the first two verses of this book, which go this way. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. In those two verses, we see that Paul was the one who wrote this letter, along with his protege Timothy, as servants or slaves of Christ. If you don't know who Paul was, he was the missionary church planner in the early church. He'd once hated the church, persecuted Christians, but then was dramatically converted to Christ. And on some of his travels around the world, he met Timothy, and he recruited Timothy to join him. And one of their first stops was to a city known as Philippi, modern-day Greece. In Philippi, God did some really cool things through Paul and his companions. They saw miracles happen, most notably an exorcism and an earthquake in a matter of days. And then when a number of people responded to their message and were saved, a new church was formed in this strategic Uh, multicultural city in Greece. Paul quickly grew very fond of this little church so that now as he wrote this letter a number of years later, his care and concern just oozes out of every phrase to them. In verse 3, Paul basically bursts into a heartfelt thank you note. Except that it's not a thank you to the Philippian church. It's a thank you to God. Read along in verse 3. Notice how emotional, how emotive Paul sounds here. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Stop there for now. Can ask here, this is obviously a personal letter from Paul to this church. So what, what is this ancient letter from a man who's long dead by now, written to a church that, in a city which is now only ruins, have to say to us today, 21st century Ottawa? Quite a lot, actually. The message God sends through Paul here is still very relevant. Because if we are followers of Jesus, we've received much of the same things that Paul had. And it, we can experience many of the same things that the Philippian church had. So the, we, this is very relevant to us. And the overarching message is very applicable. And it's very simple, just this. We should always be thankful. Okay? Our lives should exude Gratitude to God. We should always be thankful. How do you feel when you look through old pictures? And whether it's physical or digital, photo albums, pictures, uh, especially from our life, they have a way of reminding us, of, of recalling memories for us, bringing them back to our minds. They may remind us of hard times that we've gone through although we don't usually try to document those, more often we like dwelling on good times we've had in life, remembering special times and moments with family or friends over the years. So, a brand new baby, a small child's smile, a memorable holiday, a family trip, a, a, a gathering of friends together, a birthday party, graduation, wedding, whatever. We, have, we love to dwell on these things, remember them. And Paul here, he wouldn't have had any physical photographs to remind him of these things, but he did have memories. And in verse 3 he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He tells the Philippians, I remember you often. Good memories. Maybe he reminisced about seeing people saved. Or the great fellowship that he had in Philippi. Or or the miracles that God did there. But Paul's good memories didn't just spark nostalgia and and warm, fuzzy feelings for Paul. No, his remembrance of the Philippians sparked gratitude and prayer. says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now those verses may be phrased a little awkwardly in this translation. It just means we have to pay closer attention to figure out what they mean. Okay? I want you to notice a few things here. First, I want you to notice the priority or the crucial importance of thankfulness. Paul puts it right at the very beginning of his book for a reason. See, though gratitude is a natural response for many of us, it's an initial response we have to God. God saves us. we We get grateful. It tends to wear off after a while. And so gratitude becomes something that we need to foster, to nurture in our lives. Because it's actually one of the best weapons we have against our own selfishness. Listen carefully to what... Matthew Harmon says, he says, Gratitude recognizes our indebtedness to God and our dependence upon him. As such, it is contrary to our natural bent towards self-sufficiency and thinking we deserve more than we have. Gratitude to God is an essential aspect of contentment. Our sinful hearts, which always crave more, work together with a world that encourages us to focus on what we do not have, rather than on what we do have, in order to make us ungrateful and prompt us to demand what we think we deserve. If you do not feel particularly grateful this morning, for whatever reason, ask yourself, are you more focused on your current circumstances and what you want in life or on what God has already given you and done for you? What are you more focused on? Like I pointed out, Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians, but he wasn't thanking them. Who did he thank? He says, I thank my God, my God. God. This is actually very significant, because as we'll soon see, Paul did not find himself in very happy circumstances. So we wonder, how is Paul still so upbeat and cheerful here? Well, I think he had a secret. His secret laid in the fact that his attention was fixed on God. And not just God in some generic, distant sense but on the intensely personal and relational, my God, I think my God. This changed everything about how he saw his situation. Instead of being consumed by his own hardships, Paul was consumed by God's goodness. So he kept noticing things. He, He kept remembering God's blessings to him. One of those blessings was the Philippian church. But let me ask you. Do you see God as more than just some distant, all-powerful being? Do you see God as your God? Personally, intimately. Can you call him my God? Because this will shape your attitude... And your gratitude toward him. Notice also here how Paul emphasizes the extent of his gratitude. In Greek, Paul repeats the same word four times in two verses. Which we, we can miss because it's translated into three different English words. He says it this way. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, same word, in every, same word again, prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. All, always, every, all. One scholar explains that Paul gives thanks over every memory, at every moment, in every mention, for every member. So question, are you this grateful for anyone in your life? And that every time you think of them, you end up thanking God for them. Not many of our cares or our loves can even compare to how deeply Paul cared about these people. But did you know that one of the most loving things you can do for someone is pray for them? If we never pray for those we care about, either we don't believe in the power of prayer or we don't care for those people as much we think they as we think we do we need to pray but not necessarily to just pray for people we need to pray for that kind of love that springs out that prayers those prayers for people that kind of love that Paul has we need to pray for that i i pray that god would give all of us Here at Calvary, this kind of love for each other, starting with me. I am so thankful to God for each one of you, but there is no way I'm this thankful, this prayerful. But I want to be. I want all of us to be always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. That's Paul's first mention of joy in Philippians. Get used to it. This quick mention is soon going to crescendo into a major theme of rejoicing throughout this book. So I think we should actually pause here and define joy right away so we understand what Paul means by it. It's not just happiness. Okay? One definition says that in contrast to happiness, which is rooted in circumstances, joy is a deep-seated confidence and delight in God and his promises that transcends circumstances. That's what joy is. Paul's point here is simply to say that he is praying with this kind of confidence and delight. He's praying with Joy. So no matter what was going on in his life, he was confident in God. He was delighting in God. And he was praying with joy every time God brought the Philippians to his mind. This tells us something of how we should be thankful. And the next verse tells us why. Here, here's what I think we can take away. We should always be thankful with joy for faithful gospel partners. Okay, We should always be thankful to God with joy in our hearts for the faithful gospel partners that God gives us. So Paul says, I thank my God with joy. But why? Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, while the Philippians had started as Paul's spiritual children, they quickly became his spiritual partners. They had become involved in the ministry of spreading the gospel. They had begun reaching out to others around them, the way that Paul reached out to them. And we know from elsewhere that the Philippian church had gone beyond that. They had become prayerful and financial contributors to Paul's ministry. In fact, this letter was a response to a monetary gift that they had sent Paul. Without this kind of support, Paul couldn't have done as much ministry as he did. And so Paul felt like th- that their fingerprints were all over his work, which he was very grateful for. Good partners are hard to find in this world. Just ask Eric Carlson, or LeBron James, Or ask someone trying to start up a business. Or ask anyone searching high and low for a partner in marriage. Finding the right person or the, the right people to join forces with in any facet of life can be a challenge. You have to find someone with the same goals and the same passions and the same vision as you. And many people actually fail to find good partners for their team or their company in life. But did you know that God has given you and me perfect partners for ministry? He has. Because he's given us each other. Look around. Meet your partners. (laughs) When God brings people together in a church, he does so purposefully. When we need a a common goal, so he commands us to glorify him by making disciples. Got a common goal? We need a, a common passion, so he gives us a love for himself and for other people. We need a common vision, so he sets our eyes on heaven. And then he tells us, "You're a team. You're partners. Go out. You're a family, a body. Go be my people." Paul says he's thankful for the partnership he has here with you all. Everyone in the Philippian church. Which means that everyone, young or old, rich or poor, educated or not, from whatever race, station, stage in life, everyone who believes is part of this partnership. So get this. Whether or not you've ever belonged to anything significant in your life, You can be part of this team. Part of us. And I want to tell you, if you've believed in Jesus, I'm so glad we're on the same team. Sometimes we may not act like we are, but we're supposed to be a unified, force. For good. And when we're unified and we're working together, it's a beautiful thing. Something to be thankful for. But instead of thanking each other, we should thank God for giving us to each other. Our common mission revolves around what Paul calls the gospel here. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Which, if you're unfamiliar with that term, it simply refers to the good news of Jesus Christ. So how how Jesus came to earth, how he lived the life that we can never live, how he died the death that we deserve and rose again to new life. Now he promises that if we believe in him, he'll save us from our sin, from our consequences of our sin, from the wrath of God against our sin. When Paul uses the gospel here, though, he's primarily talking about gospel ministry. Reaching out with the gospel. He says because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So we are bound together by the goal of spreading the gospel of Jesus. But just stop and think about that for a minute. Think about the gospel is at the heart of God's Grand plan. His purpose for the entire universe. The most significant events in all of history. And he's invited you to be a part. A small part, sure. But you have a role to play. You're going to be a partner in the gospel. Just ponder how amazing that is. And then think, consider whether or not you're playing your part. You don't need to be in full-time church ministry to be gospel partners in ministry. At all. Whether you are a construction worker or a daycare worker. Whether you're in sports or schools or security. Whether you work with software or hardware or clothes that you wear. You are called as a gospel partner. You can make a difference for God's kingdom wherever you are. And we are also called to be faithful partners, like the Philippians were to Paul. He says, you are are always my, my partners in the gospel from the first day... Until now. So from the first day that Paul arrived and presented the gospel to Lydia and to others in Philippi, till the day that Paul wrote this letter, God had empowered them to partner with Paul. May we do likewise for each other here at Calvary by God's power. And may we also be faithful partners with other churches doing gospel ministry. Near or far, we're on the same team. Okay, so over the past couple of years, we've made a number of efforts to do this better. You probably know many of them. We partnered with Greenbelt and Pine Grove for a great youth ministry. We partnered with our, our neighbor church, Celebration Church, for many events and outreach events. And on Good Friday, we expanded that circle, teamed up with a number of other churches, new friend churches in the city. I've done other things as well. I'm really excited to share with you soon about a new partner church we have, a French Baptist church plan in Quebec that we've decided to team up with. We'll be able to support, serve them, receive support from them. But these partnerships, these kinds of teams, team-ups that we have, are not only a great witness to our world who thinks we're all just divided. It's a great witness to our community, but it's also a very healthy thing for us. So as God gives us the ability to do so, we should do this more and more often. It's partners in the gospel. In these verses, you might have noticed, Paul takes us from the past to the present. So from the first day until now, the next verse we haven't read yet takes us into the future. Look what it says in verse 6. Paul says, And I... Am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Looking to the future. And this gives us another amazing reason we should be thankful. We should always be thankful with confidence in being God's projects. We should always be confidently thankful because... We are God's good projects. you have any unfinished projects around your home? We all do, right? Perhaps something you started to work on, then you haven't had the time or the money to finish it. So it's been frustrating just just left undone, or worse, half done. We've got a little filing cabinet at home that we organized a couple years ago, got all our papers organized in the files. Since that time, we haven't done any filing. So you can guess what happened, right? We got this pile of papers, That's no joke, probably two feet high, just sitting on top of the filing cabinet, waiting for us to muster up the willpower to go through it. These kind of projects just around that they may be much bigger than that. They weigh on us, right? when they're left undone for a long period of time. Now here's a more serious question. Do you ever feel like an unfinished project? Does it feel like God started to work on you at some time in the past, but that you've been left unfinished? Or that maybe you stalled in your progress. Maybe you feel frustrated at not being able to beat some indwelling sin. Like anger or lust. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Maybe you feel like you're lacking some of the fruits of the Spirit. Love or joy or peace peace, or so on. Maybe you don't pray as often as you like. Or don't witness as much as you should. You sometimes feel like it's one step forward, two steps back. If I had to guess, I'd guess that many, if not most of us, would feel this way. Well, guess what? you actually are an unfinished project. You are an unfinished project. So, it's understandable to sometimes feel frustrated or discouraged or unfulfilled with things as they are. However, Paul's got some incredibly good news for all of us today. You may be an unfinished project, but you're still a project. One of God's projects. You haven't been left alone, or abandoned, or given up on. He's still working on you. He's still working on me. You're not perfect yet. And no one should expect you to be. Jesus doesn't. I mean, He tells us to be holy and perfect, but he tells us to be holy and perfect for the very reason that we aren't yet. And here it says that we're not even an annoying or frustrating project for God to be working on. What kind of work does it say that God began in us? It says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work. A good work. Not a bad work. Not a, an incomplete work. Not a disappointing work. We're a good project. That God enjoys working on, looks forward to completing one day. God is still working on you. And even better than that, God always finishes what he, what he starts. Verse 6 I'm sure of this that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is absolutely sure, he's certain, he's confident, convinced of this. He saw God start a work in and among the Philippian believers, and he knew without a doubt that God would finish that work. Same goes for us. If we follow Jesus, the work he's begun in us is really the entire work of salvation from start to ...to finish, from justification to glorification. God will not only save his people from sin... ...one day he will glorify the same people. Guaranteed. We wonder, well, how could Paul be so sure of this? Why was he so confident? This is an important question. One scholar explains this verse's clear answer to this question says, Paul's confidence is not in the Christianity of the Christians, but in the godness of God, who is supremely trustworthy, able, and committed to finish the work he has begun. In other words, we should never be confident because of ourselves. In our ability, our own ability, our own willpower, our resolve, our diligence, our increasing maturity... We should be confident because of the will and purpose of God. A trustworthy God. See, you're not going to be able to just muster up enough willpower one day to be better than you are. You're not trustworthy or able or committed enough. But God is. Nothing can thwart God's sanctifying purpose for our lives. Even our failures. If he has begun a work in you, he will finish it. We just can't get ahead of ourselves expecting that now. Because when does Paul say he will complete his work? He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ, which is when Jesus returns to earth, and not a moment sooner. The good news is that that day is coming. God promises that us that it is. So, you will not be an unfinished project forever. You will be, if you believe in Jesus and if accepted Him into your life, you will be perfected one day. You will be free, freed of all the sin in your life, the indwelling sins, even the drive and desire to sin. You will be formed into the image of Christ to be like Him. I'm sure of this. Now let me ask you, Are you grateful for this? And if you are, have you expressed your gratitude to God? For some of you here, though, maybe God hasn't begun his work in you yet. Do you know that he's ready and willing to today? In fact, he'd love to. To start his work. If you come to Jesus with an open heart to repent of your sin, to believe in him, it's kind of like you hire him as your contractor for the rest of your life. A little bit like that. The same God who died and then conquered death by rising again will breathe his power into your life and begin to transform you from this day on. Like a, a potter forming clay. Or a builder building a home. Or a creator breathing life into dust. So I implore you, if you haven't, let him start his work today. Come to him. Open heart. Let him start working. You'll never regret it. The original Greek here, all of verse 3 to 6, what we've just gone through, is one run-on sentence. One thought. So it's like, Paul says, I'm so thankful to God that He gave me you as partners and that He's going to finish His work in you. Paul is grateful. He's joyful. He's confident. But some may have thought, Whoa, whoa, Paul. Slow down. Calm down now. You're too excited about this. You're too optimistic. You might feel some of that same tension today, thinking, Paul's a little too over the top. Now, Paul may have anticipated this, because in the very next verse, he begins defending himself. It's like, no, 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 trust me, my feelings are justified. I have good reason to be confident about this. Look in verse 7. It says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all for, for, yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now these last verses for today give us one more how and why we should be thankful here 's how I put it: We should always be thankful with affection for shared Grace participation. says eh, sounds kind of funny. We should always be thankful with loving affection for our shared grace participation. It basically means our experiencing grace together. Verse 7 to 8 are a beautiful description of how much Paul loved the brothers and sisters in Philippi. He could have just said, I love you all. But he doesn't. It goes way beyond that. He first says... I hold you in my heart. Right here. This is very personal to Paul. His affection for them was strong and deep. So strong and deep, in fact, that he says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. What is Christ's affection like? Well, that's a love strong enough to die for you. The King James Version translates verse 7. I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It's probably a good thing we have other translations. (laughs) However, this gets at something that we miss, we can rather easily miss. The word Paul uses for affection refers to a deep emotion that you feel in your gut. It's a love that has oomph. Deep inside of you. Paul goes so far as to swear that this is how he feels. God is my witness. And he says that he yearns. He doesn't just kind of miss them. He yearns to be reunited. Side note. Do you know that Jesus yearns for us? That's implied here. How humbling is that? How deep is his love for us? But did you notice Paul's reason for why he cared so much about these people? Look in verse 7. It says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for or because you are all partakers with me of grace. Partakers with me of grace. He cared about them because they were fellow partakers of grace. Again, everything flows from God's grace, even the love that we have for one another. And we can experience, you can talk about this, we can experience God's grace in so many ways today. I hesitate to even try to sum it up because there's countless ways, 10,000 reasons for our heart to find. But we experience it in our very breath that we breathe. In our prayers that we pray. In the growth that we experience in godliness. In the forgiveness of our sin daily. In material blessings we have. In God's word. In the fellowship of the saints. So many more. These are experiences of grace. And every time that we experience God's grace in our life, we partake or we take part in grace. Like you partake in a delicious meal. You get to experience and enjoy grace. But we're wired in a way that if we enjoy an experience, we want to experience it with other people, right? Just ask yourself, is it more enjoyable to go to a movie by yourself or with other people? Or a sporting event? Or a concert? Or whatever? Right? With other people, obviously. Much more enjoyable. So, Isn't it great that you don't just experience grace by your lonesome? Isn't it wonderful that other people are here to enjoy it and experience it with you? That's what Paul's excited about. He's like, you're partaking of grace with me. Isn't that great? Matthew Harmon says affection for fellow believers is forged in the mutual experience of grace. That's huge. Affection for fellow believers is forged in the mutual experience of grace. And this is especially vital when God's grace doesn't necessarily seem that great to us. Do you notice a, a surprising feature of the grace Paul says he and the Philippians shared together? The grace he talks about wasn't all delicious or desirable. In verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Some are like, whoa, wait a second. Paul's imprisoned? Because these haven't sound like the words of a man in jail. Let me tell you, If you think you have it bad right now, Paul had it worse. If anyone had the right to be grumpy and unthankful and joyless, it was Paul. He was under house arrest in Rome, chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier, while he essentially was waiting for a death sentence to come down from Caesar. That was his life. Every day. But right when it could have been embarrassing to be a friend of Paul, death row inmate, the Philippian church didn't shrink away or distance themselves from him. They stood with him, supporting him prayerfully, financially, tangibly showing that they shared in the same gospel for which he was now in chains. That's what Paul meant by the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They were standing in it with him. God's grace, this is crazy to think about, God's grace had led Paul to prison. Sometimes, God's grace will lead you to the lowest places. But God's grace had also given Paul people to love him. And stand with him. Are you thankful that in your darkest seasons God's provided fellow partakers of his grace? To stand with you. To support you. To give you a hug. To pray with you. To love you let me add, in hard times, you will be tempted to run from this. To turn your back on what you need most. Don't do it. Run to God. Run to his people who can share his grace with you. I have one final thing to show you in this passage, and it's not necessarily easy to see, so pay close attention. So we've read along here may be confused as to why Paul even talks about his own love so much in verses 7 and 8. It's almost like he veers off to another topic after verse 6, but it's actually all connected. Look again, remember what Paul says verse 6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Paul says, It's right for me to feel this way, thankful for you, confident about you. But Why? Why is it right for me to feel this way about you? Look, look at it, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Now, that seems strange, but notice Paul's train of thought. It's like Paul is saying, God is going to finish his work in you. How do I know this? Well, because I love you. is that a little bit strange? He repeats the same idea in in verse 8. It says, For God is my witness for how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, because I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, this is why I'm confident. How does Paul's love and care, his personal love and care, validate his confidence? Why does that make him certain of God's faithfulness? Here's what I think. I think it's because Paul has experienced the vast love and grace of God for himself. He knows the affection of Jesus firsthand. And God has given him a love for the Philippians that flows from that love. So, here's what Paul says. He says, listen, if I love you this much, If I care for you this much, with the love of Jesus, I know I'd do everything for you. I'd keep working on you. I'd finish my work for you. I'd die for you. If I love you this much, if if I, a fellow recipient of grace, would care for you this much, how much more will the very giver of grace care for you? You get it? Been given the love of Christ. He knew how much Christ cared for these people. He knew Christ would finish his work. God has given us abundant grace, promised us an abundance more. This is why we should be affectionate and confident. And joyful. This is why we should be thankful. So what do you say we write a thank you note? Or rather let's sing our gratitude or with our praises. But God deserves so much more. Let's pray. As we bow our heads and our hearts now, why don't you just take a minute and in the silence just tell God what's on your heart. Tell him thank you. Thankful that you're thankful for him saving you, for him working on you, and so much more. Whatever is on your heart, whatever he brings to mind, thank him for that. Jesus, thank you for your grace as we experience it, may we see it, and may we never stop thanking you in your name.